Today we're speaking with Simon Kustenmacher, a director of the Demographics Group, which he co-founded alongside Bernard Salt in 2017. Simon has a background in geography and worked for many years with KPMG as a business consultant. He's a columnist for the New Daily newspaper and a contributor to the Australian newspaper and a media commentator on demographics and data. Welcome to the show, Simon. How excited are you for the new census data to come out? Ah, that was a, a glorious day uh, when, the set, when the first bit of census data got released. So we still got two more major tranches, actually three more major tranches of data to be released, and they just get uh, better each time. Very good. And now, can you just give us a little bit more of a background on you? How did you get into demographics? Yeah, that was uh, sheer dumb luck. Uh, so I'm a geographer by training. So um, urban geography, how people move within cities, how cities function, and globalization uh, were the things that I focused on in my in my degrees. Um, and then I just started my career working as a lonely data analyst, so very nondescript job that really doesn't have any specific um, academic credentials attached to it. Uh, and then stumbled across a job advertisement at what was back then called KPMG Demographics. And it just blew me away because I never considered that you could uh, do just the fun bits um, of geography, the demographic element for a living. Um, and so that was how I met uh, Bernard Salt, who was running um, the demographics group at KPMG. And five years ago, Bernard and I um, started our own little, little show together. So you're a capers lad. Um, Simon, can you tell us a little bit about the demographics group and also some of the range of things you do, presumably research and also your speaking roles? Yeah, so what we what we do as a, as a group is, um, so we got two main speakers, Bernard Salt and I, uh, we tra travel the world and the country in particular um, to talk about all things demographics. Um, at board meetings as well as big conferences at small conferences at local governments um, really wherever demographics uh, play a role and that is many places because demographics aren't everything but they are everywhere and we can forecast quite precisely um, how consumers behave into the future and what happens um, in Australia in the future based on the rough uh, we can't precisely focus it, but we can tell you the rough direction to a very precise degree. So that helps. And we do also do business consulting. So whenever an organization has a demographic emergency, um, that might be as simple as a question as a, um, a private school wondering whether they should open a additional an additional campus um, to more bigger organizations like the Googles, the Kmarts of the world that want to understand the future directions um, so that they can adjust their targeted marketing and their product development um, to you know, fit the demographic profile. And then uh, what keeps me busy as well is writing um, one and a half columns per week. Um, so two monthly ones, uh, one weekly one that just uh, forces uh, me to constantly screen data for stories, for narratives. So there is um, certain pressure that is here every week <laughs> to come up with new perspectives uh, on, on the world. And that helps a lot in order to constantly have fresh material ready for presentations as well. Can you provide some background on the census? When was the first Australian census? What was the population back then? And where does the word census actually originate from? 
<laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so the 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 real origin of the word it's it's a Latin phrase. It just means sensere, uh, uh, just means to estimate, to to count, um, essentially. And the reason the census was first held across the world is that uh, you know the uh, big shots needed to know how many um, plebs they had in their dominions so that they could tax them accordingly. That was essentially the um, the male reasons. And you were particularly interested in how many of your citizens were were male and young and strong, so you could uh, uh, field a military. And then coming to the first Australian census. So we ran a um, couple of population counts on a state basis uh, before that, but the first national census was in 1911. Um, so that is, what is that, 111 years ago now? Um, and it was, we were the size of, well, less than Melbourne, four and a half million people uh, back then. And that even included 20,000 indigenous peoples. So the indigenous count wasn't as precise probably, um, but already a somewhat sizable country. And we have, of course, increased fivefold um, since then. And the census then also looked different. If you remember last year when you filled out your census form, you were asked 65 questions, which in the international comparison is massive. We run one of the most comprehensive and therefore best and most insightful censuses of the world. It's only really um, Canada, New Zealand, and Singapore that come even close to what we are running here. We're running a fantastic census. The Americans uh, run a census that asks 16 questions, and they run it every 10 years. We run ours every five years. Um, so we are orders of magnitude better. But in 1911, when we ran the first census, we only uh, asked 14 questions as well. And that included simple stuff like um, your name, your sex, your country of birth. So, Simon, I mean, the, the census was mentioned in the Bible, I think. I mean, that's why uh, Joseph and Mary went to um, Bethlehem, because of the census, I think. Anyway, but I'll move on. And can you provide us a bit of a brief overview of what the census does for us? Well, so why we run this thing in the first place is... Uh, we need this for a social good. This is not just so that uh, data nerds like I have uh, funky columns to write. The questions are really meant to answer specific societal questions. Where should we provide social services? Um, where should we build infrastructure? How many schools are required? That means how many teachers do we need to put through the university system? and so on. And of course, because we ask this on such a detailed level, um, every local government area is essentially addicted to the census in order to provide um, very detailed information like how often to sweep a street. All these kind of discussions are being um, fed from census data. Um, the census asks a very simple question, where do you work? Where do you live? How did you travel to work? That is an incredibly powerful question for us to run traffic modeling on. We can do awesome stuff where we literally calculate the commuting patterns or the, we estimate the commuting patterns of every single Australian resident, um, which is great. So we can do all these fun little things. Um, we can't do those things really well with the 21 census um, because this happened to have been run during the pandemic, 
which means that people did not travel to work. And so we don't have the precise insights in how people travel to work on the day. So if you are running um, transport models, if you are being tasked with providing the infrastructure that the country needs, uh, then it was a big disappointment for you that the census was run during or in the middle of a pandemic. Um, if you are just interested in the pandemic as a research subject, you would have jumped for joy uh, when you realized that there was a census going to be held in the middle of it. Because all of a sudden, if you remember August 21, there were um, different levels of lockdowns active across the whole country. So all of a sudden we can now look at what impact on work behavior, uh, on volunteering behavior, for example, um, on childcare behavior, um, the, the lockdowns had. So it's quite nice, actually. It's a nice natural experiment um, that we can answer all those questions now. And that's worth a ton. So we couldn't possibly ever run surveys that could replicate the important uh, information that we can get out of the census. So Simon, noting that we've only received the first tranche of the census data so far, what are the top three trends that you're seeing coming through in that data? Um, so far in, in this data set, well, the first one that got, made me really excited was that we've seen 25% increase in the indigenous population. And that wasn't driven by a very high birth rate or anything, uh, because the indigenous question uh, asks you to self-identify as indigenous. And that means we created a society, a country where a significant larger chunk of the population feels comfortable, feels safe enough to self-identify as indigenous, which might have carried a stigma with it um, years or decades ago. So that is quite exciting. That means that we are pointing into the right direction, that we are making progress. Anyone who is involved in indigenous rights, land rights, or whatever it is, just societal fairness, might say, oh, the change is not coming fast enough. Uh, but I'm someone who's used to looking at decades, and I'm seeing things move in the right direction. It might not be a good news story for individual people that are involved in the moment, but as a society, as a people, we're moving in the right direction. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And what about any of the misconceptions about census data? Can you talk to that? Well, um, I'm not even sure what the, what the largest misconception is. There, there might be a general um, dissatisfaction or, or distrust towards government, but I don't actually think that the ABS is uh, affected by that. They had at the 2016 census, they had a bit of a, a mishap uh, with, with the online form, with a couple of server crashes. Um, so that probably, you know, led to a bit of a loss in trust, but the ABS has a fantastic census completion rate of uh, this time around was 96.1%, which is enormous. 
Is that because uh, everyone us. was at home? Well, by, almost everyone was at home. There are, of <laughs> course, people with uh, travel exemptions and whatnot, mm-hmm. and people who might have moved somewhere else temporarily and so on, uh, and prisoners <laughs> and whatever. Um, so all that still occurred. Uh, but overall, we all worked from home. We all lived, we all stayed at home because we couldn't travel, we couldn't visit um, and, you know, zoom across the country easily. So that wasn't possible. So we've seen changes there. Um, do you think you know, the... Back- do you think that that misconception around, oh, sorry, I guess I should say the mistrust around the data, do you think that's less of an issue now that we have, or that the ABS really has a really high quality website where people can see how that data comes together, they can understand the usefulness of it? What do you think? Oh, I think it helps. I think the ABS did step up their game. Uh, so overall, I'm very pleased with the changes to the website. Uh, and they make it they make lots of information available in a very easily uh, to digest way. That's the community profiles uh, that that they publish, the the basic time series that they publish. This is data that even as a novice, you can very quickly digest. Um, that's not the stuff that that we get too excited about, though. Um, there is a tool in the ABS called Table Builder that allows you to, well, build your own tables based on, you can ask any question from the census data and this tool will answer it for you. You need to know how to use it. It's not overly complicated. You need to have just basic data um, analysis skills. Uh, But once you master this, you just see the incredible power of the census. And I can't emphasize enough that there is nothing Nothing that comes close to the Australian census in all of Europe. Um, the US is, is way behind what we do. We can gain an understanding of Australia that is much, much better than what people can uh, learn about their individual European nations. We're talking orders of magnitude better here. Uh, well, that's something to be proud of, Simon, here. Uh, and in terms of the accuracy of the data, uh, the, the question of, is there follow-ups to check the accuracy of census returns? And is it so, sort of, and with your work, do you cross-check it with other sources? And I'm talking, I'm thinking about, you know, the information that's available through phone record, phone data, I should say, not phone records. But but can you just talk to that issue? Um, so overall, the census is the, is the, if you if look at publicly uh, available data, so the stuff that the ABS collects, the census is the baseline, is the stuff that you base on, that you benchmark against, uh, just because it is so incredibly precise. Do people actually completely, fully correctly answer the census? We don't really know. We can't test this. Uh, if you if you tick a box that you are Lutheran, are you Lutheran? We can't we can't check this. Um, and there's no need for us to check this because there are a couple of census questions. Um, so we could check, in theory, we could check your answer against uh, about your income against your ATO records. And you could see whether they overlap. Um, but there's no need to be doing this because the census is not meant to control you. And it is, it is actually completely anonymous um, in, in, in its own right. So therefore, any cross-tabulation and checking would be highly inappropriate. <laughs> appropriate um, of it. But I like I like the point that you asked about um, what other 
data sources can can we look at? And the ABS is uh, experimenting, and now I sound like a spokesperson for the ABS, uh, is experimenting with live data. What I mean by this is that the census always has, even though they published it faster now than in previous census, there's essentially a year's lag in the data. So we're now looking at 2021, even though we're already well and truly living in 2022. Um, but you could, of course, uh, do stuff like um, supermarket checkout a scanner, scanner data. The ABS uses this in order to roughly estimate shopping behavior. This is not perfect yet, but you see the direction that they are thinking into. They could easily combine credit card data and mobile phone data um, to understand population movements better. Assuming that you have... Um, uh, you know that you have a somewhat fixed residency just and you keep your phone uh, over a long period of time we can understand where people move based on simply the records which phone logs into which uh, tower how often so you could use this to roughly estimate populations in a live sense you know once again the methodological issues here but we will be seeing more and more of this coming more of the um, data that is collected somewhere will be published in a, in a publicly available way. And Simon, are you aware, in your opinion, are there any massive holes in, in terms of the data that, that the census is collecting? Is there anything that we're missing? In terms yeah. of what questions we could be asking, yeah. well, there is, um, there is lots and stuff that would be at least theoretically interesting to ask. So, you know, that's... Um, you could do this, that'd be fine. Um, but you want to understand that it's not appropriate for the census to ask certain questions. For example, there was a big discussion about um, sexual preference, whether you should uh, include sexual preference uh, on, the, on the census form. I say, yeah, it'd be super interesting uh, just to see you know, what the gay community does different than whatever. Like all of these would be interesting questions. But do they serve a social purpose? I say probably not, because we're probably uh, treating everyone the same, regardless of their um, of their sexual orientation. So why bother asking it? So it's a tricky one, because it could be interesting, especially now that we ask healthcare questions. It would be interesting to see whether any kind of uh, chronic health condition uh, might be more prevalent. Um, but who knows? That's not the. Uh, that's where things get too tricky, and we will see how this works out. Because this was also the first census that asks um, for chronic health conditions, which was the one question that I always wanted uh, in the census data. So I actually have my wish already uh, been fulfilled, um, which <laughs> is fantastic. Nice. Sir. Your wish came true. Uh, yeah, and sometimes you just luck out. Okay. So, Simon, Australia is a very large country with significant regional variations, or, or, or so each state seems to think. Does the census bear this out, or does it point to general similarities across the states and regions? Very big question, but... Yeah. <laughs> the first part of the answer is that from an urban planning perspective, our capital cities tend to work the same way. So we have a, a domineering CBD, um, then people cluster around the CBD um, 
as close as possible because they want to avoid the soul-destroying commute. Uh, so they pay a premium to live close to the CBD. And then each state has a couple of smaller satellite cities in relative vicinity to the uh, big city. And then a couple of agriculturalists or um, mining towns spread across the remainder of the state. That basic setup is the same wherever you look. And that means that certain movement patterns, behavioral patterns within the cities are the same. Uh, there is, of course, large um, just geographic and climate um, variance between those um, uh, towns. So every now and then in the pre-pandemic era, you lucked out and you found a gem where one city stuck out, where one city acted completely differently uh, compared to the other cities. For example, this is pre-COVID data, um, which city spends way more, twice as much than other cities on wristwatches on average. Any, any guesses? Sydney. Sydney. Uh, the correct answer okay, is... Okay, Queensland. Uh, is Darwin. Oh, damn. Um, and you first wonder why the hell are those fellas spending so much on, on wristwatches? And it is largely fellas spending the money on wristwatches because the business dress code, the business attire in Darwin uh, doesn't require you to wear a suit. Uh, so it's, it's polo shirts uh, all the way. So, you know, a polo shirt can only go up to 150 bucks. So you don't have that much variance to show your wealth, your status, your sophistication. Uh, through dress as you could with a fancy suit in, in Melbourne or Sydney. So people instead spend big on wristwatches and showcase, um, you know, their, their, their rank in the pecking order um, based, uh, based on that. So that was a, a pre-pandemic gem that you got very excited uh, to, to find, to, to stumble across. Um, but now what we've done over the last two years, now that we're talking in, in, in July 2020, too, uh, that is, is that we ran this big crazy experiment where we put our different states under different lockdown conditions for you know varying length of time, and if you run such a big collective behavior change program, this must change consumer behavior in some way or form. It must change preferences of working from home in a certain way. So I would expect at the next census even though this will be 2026 and hopefully COVID will be long gone by then, um, is that I would say we'll see more people in Melbourne work from home than in any other state, simply because the, um, the behavior of working from home got hammered into the brains of Victorians more than into the brains of um, other, um, other states. The, the, I can see a TV series coming, Simon, The Data Detectives. <laughs> Sorry, Jess. That's actually a really good idea. <laughs> there you go, Simon. Yeah, hook me up with the uh, ABC or whoever's willing to air this. <laughs> so just on that on that COVID point again, um, obviously, as soon as that data or that most recent tranche of data came out from the ABS, everyone's first question was, how is this representative? How is this data going to be used in the long term? How are we... How are we expecting, I guess, local governments and state governments in particular to be utilising that data um, for the purposes of their, you know, long-term planning and long-term infrastructure planning and those sorts of things when that data did have a massive um, flaw to it? Yeah, so you, you then, so if we, if we now look at the population distribution, so we now know clearly where people lived as of August um, 21. 
that's very good to know because we also ask in the census where did you live 12 months ago where did you live five uh, to, uh, five years ago so we know we can know the recent population movements once again this was just sheer demographic dumb luck that this census was held at this time because we know who moved um, to a town and where they moved from. So that allows us to kind of reconstruct um, on a collective basis why people might have moved to a certain town because we know the age groups, we know this life stage that they're in and we know where, where they're from and so what they might have left behind. Um, so we can answer this quite precisely. Um, and local government areas will use this data because they have to answer very urgent uh, questions about the here and now of their populations. Um, so will this population growth that we saw during COVID, if they saw a, a surge, will this continue? Will this last? And you need to have an opinion about this because as a local government, you will need to be tasked with making enough land available. Uh, it counts for the local business community, for the local developers, because if you're a small scale developer in say Geelong or the central coast and you're not building uh, massive projects, but you're not building small projects, but you need to fight for your workforce. You need to, under, you need to understand, you need to estimate um, how much stuff you will need to be building in the next couple of years. So there, the census data can actually help you, but you need to come up with an opinion. How much of this population shift that we've seen locally was due to COVID, um, meaning a temporary thing that will fade away? And how much of this was driven by bigger non-COVID related shifts? And in the population distribution, I would argue that the big shift of millennials leaving the inner city behind, moving to the urban fringe, moving to regional Australia, that that would have occurred anyways, even without COVID, simply because uh, just by sheer demographic dumb luck, millennials started to have families at scale just when the pandemic hit. That means the millennials that are clustered in the inner city, in the one and two bedroom apartments of your hip Surrey Hills and your Fitzroy's and Brunswick's, uh, that those uh, are now leaving these areas behind because they add 1.7 kids bit by bit to the households. They need a Zoom room in the house. That means they need larger homes. Those large homes are not available in the inner suburbs that they're currently occupying. These large homes are not even um, available in the middle suburbs where the baby boomers live as empty nesters in big houses and they're not downsizing uh, throughout the whole of 2020s. Uh, they will be downsizing in the 2030s when they're um, old and when the family home becomes a, a physical hazard. So that dictated the geographical relocation from the millennial generation from the city center to the urban fringe to regional Australia, but only regional Australia within a, let's call it roughly two hour radius of the relevant CBD area. So that's the that's the kind of stuff that I and my firm uh, try to you know, motivate local government areas, businesses um, to think about so that you can actually plan for the future that is all but certain um, to appear. Oh, well, that's planning, pure planning. You're talking about Simon which is fantastic. Simon, I was amazed to read that something like 46 million Americans moved residents last year. And there's certain trends in uh, internal migration in the, in, in the United States. Uh, uh, is there commonality between sort of Western nations with these movements? And I, I know it's a very, very general question, but are there commonalities? Um, to, to degree, yes. Um, so 
it makes particular sense for us to compare ourselves with uh, the United States, with Canada, with New Zealand, because we have similar geographies or, or, or metropolitan outlines uh, here. It's not as useful to compare um, us in Australia with European cities. So I'm quite happy with the American benchmark. And the experience there is that you also tend to have a city that is dominated by a single CVD. And that you still, in, in America in particular, you also have a large millennial generation. Remember that Germany, my home country, for example, does not have a large millennial generation. There, the millennial generation is significantly smaller than it is in the US, uh, than it is in Australia. Um, so yes, there are these trends that I've been describing of, of relocation um, that will be somewhat similar in the, um, in, in the US. Now, Simon, everyone was very excited to find out that the boomer age category was no longer the most numerous coming out of the census. What group has taken their place and what are the implications forecasts? Oh, you see how I just uh, uh, praised the ABS for, for, for the first half of this interview? Uh, <laughs> yes. Now, now uh, I have unleash your beast. Unleash the beast, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the generational research, which I love and I'm a big fan of, and I utilize this quite a bit, um, is a bit more vague in its nature. And so you can essentially decide how to define the generations in two basic ways. It all starts with the baby boomers uh, that started to be born in 1946 after the end of the Second World War because it was just such a massive, uh, therefore unseen uh, spike in the population that it makes sense to start a generation there. Um, and you can then either go the approach of saying, uh, yeah, every 18 years after this, we'll say there is a new generation and we'll, we'll then give them a name and we'll figure out what their main characteristics are. Um, and that's a, the approach that I prefer, the 18 year approach, because that allows us to make meaningful comparisons in the housing market about the different life stages, because the generations always go through very, very predictable life stages. You know, you go to school, you go to uni, you start your career, you have kids, um, you retire, you die, that kind of stuff. It's very predictable and easy. And another approach towards defining the generations is a more cultural approach where you're more obsessive about um, using certain year markers to say, okay, there, there was a big major event in 63 rather than in 64. So we end this generation a couple of years earlier or sooner. Um, but this is the most popular approach in the US and it's popularized by the Pew Research Center. And there the generations all have different ages. And so you have one generation with 20, that spans 20 birth years and you have another generation that only spends 12 birth years. So obviously any statement in this um, definition that one generation is larger than the other is not overly interesting to be, to be, to be quite frank. And that's the approach that the ABS has taken in their um, media um, you know, releases about the generational stuff because the, um, the, their boomer generation is 20 years long and the, all the other generations are 15 years long. So uh, according to the other measures, the baby boomers were long, have long been overtaken by the millennial generation as the largest generation. So I thought that was um, because the ABS has been doing great stuff in order to have more social media outreach. They have two uh, young women employed who, who run a really cool um, social media outreach uh, program who 
who create good engagement. Uh, but I think the generational stunt was pulled by the social media team because there is no data whatsoever uh, by the ABS that uses um, generational data or measures simply because it is too vague of a um, of a subject. And so this is where the social media gurus won over the data gurus and the result wasn't great. Controversial. Oh, well, that, that, Jess, there you go. It, it just shows that the scientific approach or, or consistency and with data, Simon, you know, garbage in, garbage out, that you have to have consistent, a degree of consistency with with these things. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Uh, absolutely. At the very least, you need to be open while you're defining a generation this way. And there's nothing, the, the ABS has zero work on generations other than that funky little press release, which caught good attention. So it was on the money, if you will, from a media attention um, perspective, but I didn't find it in any way meaningful. It's a good, it's a good headline because it allows you to talk about the handing over uh, of the reins from one generation to the next. Um, and now half of the baby boomer generation is already of retirement age. The other half will reach this obviously in the coming decade. Um, so that's somewhat interesting just to, to have this as a public discussion. What will this country look like when the baby boomers retire? What will this country look like once you have um, baby boomers vacating the top leadership spots? and handing them over to Gen X. You know, Gen X, people born in the 60s and 70s, uh, are a very small generation. And they are- That's my generation, Jess. That's your generation, yeah. <laughs> and they are already um, occupying um, the top leaderships uh, uh, jobs. You, you become, statistically speaking, CEO at 54, prime minister at 52. Already at this stage, every single state premier is a Gen Xer. Technically speaking, Dominic Perrottet in, in New South Wales even is a millennial, but because he doesn't have quite the millennial vibe, uh, I'm, I'm counting him as an exa here as well, an uh, honorary exa. Um, but so you do see that the, the, the reins of power are being handed over all the time. And this is where generational research really is interesting because we can then think through what does a country look like where the top leadership positions that set the policy uh, direction, that set the you know, um, regulations in, in, in government, um, the directions of a company. How do those change when a new bunch of people, when a new set of values takes over? Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty confident about my prediction that under a Gen X leadership, um, a generation that is obsessed with gender equality because they were the first generation um, to have seen their moms enter the workforce. So it was the first generation just think it's normal for women to be part of the workforce and to think it's bizarre to pay different uh, dollars uh, for the same work done just because one person, one worker is a woman, uh, one worker is a man. That doesn't make sense to them. And now they're taking over leadership positions. And the workforce that they're managing uh, in the, by 2030 will be 75% millennial or Gen Z, the younger generations. So there's no way in hell that by the end of this decade, we'll have a gender pay gap that will not, uh, that will completely evaporate. Uh, yeah. mm, interesting, interesting, Simon. What, talk about a gloomy subject. What, what a, no, no, I didn't mean that about pay, pay differences, <laughs> Jess. Don't get into me. I, I, I'm moving I was about on. to jump down your throat, but no, I, no, no, I, I, on, I'm, I'm going to hold right. myself up. No, 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 you control <laughs> me very well, Jess, most of the time. Uh, Simon, about 160,000 people die each year in Australia. Is this, is this going to go up 
as a as a figure as we age? Oh, absolutely. So we'll have heaps more people dying every year simply because a very big generation, the baby boomer generation, is slowly entering the dying ranks. So um, you know, if you run a morgue, if you run a, a funeral parlor, um, you know, you got you got work to do over the next uh, couple of uh, the next decade and a bit. Absolutely, yeah. In, 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 sorry, Jess. I was going to say, on the flip side, what about birth rates? I think um, there's been a lot in the media about this recently as well, um, that the birth rate is, is falling quite significantly. Uh, and, and there's a lot of confusion here with data. Um, so what is happening now on the, on the birth side of things is that the big generation of um, millennials are now reaching the baby making stage of the life cycle. They procrastinated a bit. They you know, did a gap year. Then they uh, worked for a bit longer. And only once women reach their mid thirties really um, are babies being born or first kids being born at scale. But that is happening now. And that is happening to a very, very big generation. Um, so that means there'll be heaps of babies. The, the headcount of babies will be large. That said, the millennial women of today are having heaps fewer babies on average than the previous generations, than their moms, than their, than their grandmothers. Um, so that changes things. Uh, and so you, know, you will find uh, midwives uh, claiming, rightly so, that they've never been busier in their lives. But at the same time, we see a rapidly declining birth rate that then points to, um, you know, an increased need to push for migration if we want to continue to grow an economy. And, and Simon, I read, uh, I was reported on the news that the birth rate, I think in 2021, dropped 2.3%. Um, and there was this theory or there was some commentators saying that there would be a baby boom during the lockdowns but it seems that the opposite actually happened exactly yeah so if you remember back at the at the first lockdown which was meant to be the only lockdown there was lots and lots of uh, little columns being published about the you know jokingly writing i hope i guess it was jokingly um writing about the upcoming corona baby boom um, as if the only thing we could think of in lockdown was to procreate, was to make babies as soon as we stay at home uh, for one more day. And that didn't occur. And it's no surprise to anyone looking at uh, population data um, on a regular basis, because in times of historic pandemics, in times of historic economic downturns, there are always fewer rather than more babies being born. This, the, the opposite is the case when things are looking extremely bright. When you, when you think that you're going to be super, super rich in the future and that your country is going to have a, a cracker of a decade ahead, uh, then you're adding more babies. Um, but that's not the case. And in general terms, the more educated uh, women become, the fewer births, um, then the smaller the houses that people can afford, the smaller the birth rate. And this is what we're seeing in Australia with high housing costs is that um, if you wanted three kids, that dictates four bedrooms at the very least in a house. And very few people can afford a four bedroom house, let alone if you have to, uh, if you have to afford kids at the same time. So they, it doesn't work. So the whole built environment, uh, the house prices boom, the trend towards more and more highly educated women, all that dictates quite clearly an ever falling birth rate. 
And, and so I understand that housing affordability or lack thereof has been linked to falling fertility rates. Is that is that the sort of point you were making there? Yeah, that, that, that's that's what I'm saying. Is people people just run the numbers in their head. That doesn't need to be a formal budget, but you go well, a house that I find acceptable for myself and you know my wife and two kids that costs x many dollars uh, that is freakishly expensive you faint a bit when you think about it and then you go well we would need a larger house if we add number three and then you don't add number three that's how people think um, and as long as there aren't bigger houses available for very cheap money why would you add more kids it's just too expensive and particularly a generation uh, now that got used to international travel, um, they will also be able to do the numbers and see, oh, adding one more kid to the family, um, that will make it international travel, which is now rarer than when I was younger, um, is going to be even more expensive. So I better hold off. That's the kind of decisions that people actually you know, do make, whether this is uh, explicitly explicitly said or whether this is an unspoken uh, calculation uh, i can't i can't uh, judge and simon what about the single person households i think what we saw through the pandemic is obviously all those people that were living in share houses or um, perhaps living with family started to move out onto their own because they needed or wanted more space um, given that they were going to be spending a lot more time inside what are the implications for this in terms of housing numbers and and generally speaking, more health well-being. Well, so if you have more people, so if you distribute your 25 million Australians across more smaller households, you need more households in order to make sure that everyone has a roof over their head. It's just that simple. But it is really not that simple because the uh, trend towards single person households and uh, is created at both ends of the age spectrum. Um, you have younger people moving out from home now um who are probably willing to stay single for longer because they have the notion of you know they're not willing to settle just for the next best person just so you know that things are, are all settled um you want to find the right partner so there's more pressure than ever to find the right partner that means you will live longer by yourself until you found the right person so that's one bit then you might be even hesitant to move in with your new partner because you're already uh, you know, older than you were in previous decades when you found your partner. You're so a bit more settled in your way, so you stay as two separate households. At the older end of the age spectrum, you now have baby boomer women in particular uh, being the heads of uh, lone person households because their husbands are starting to die. And both of those trends will continue throughout the next decade. So you will see heaps more single person households. Um, from an urban planning perspective, uh, that is quite dramatic because it just means you need to build more relevant boxes uh, for people to live in. Uh, that's big. If I was running, um, let's say a toaster company, I'd be very, very happy because every household, doesn't matter how big, oh, has a toaster. Yeah, so that's that's good news. So it depends on whether you need to, uh, you know, provide housing, affordable housing for all people, or whether you want to sell toasters. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport, and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods, and places for people. 
See ratio.com.au for details. We're moving to Japan now. Um, <laughs> it's estimated that over a million Japanese live as hikamori, which means reclusive, totally withdrawn from society. Um, some may not go out of their household, their house for decades. Um, while in the past that was mostly young men, recent data suggested it's broadening out. Um, is there a potential for this to happen in Australia? And is there any census data about engagement by people or depth of feeling for place? So several questions in there. Yeah, so we don't measure that. We don't measure any of that, but we can only measure how many lone person households there are. That's the extent to it. We could then check uh, whether these people said they volunteered, which assumingly means they interacted with other people. We could also check whether these people had care responsibilities. So this could be, you know, somebody who lives in a, in a, in a, in a different dwelling to them, which then would dictate that they had contact with other humans. So we can therefore come up with some sort of plausible number uh, that would say how big the potential cohort of, you know, and if they went to work, they also interacted with other people if they said they went to a specific office. So we could come up with a number of saying, how big is this area in, in, in Australia? We, that, that'd be fine. Um, but we know that it's coming, to be quite honest. We know that loneliness is going to be pandemic in Australia. I can predict this right now. We have 500,000, a bit over 500,000 people, 85 plus in the country right now. In 13 years, which is not a long time, this will double to just over a million. Um, these people, 85 plus, they will increasingly live in lone person households um, and they will increasingly live in car dependent suburbs that are not walkable. And increasingly it is common for uh, children and their parents, adult children and their, their elderly parents to live in different cities. So that essentially all but dictates that loneliness will become an issue. Well, we can't just all bet on that everyone will be happily WhatsApping and FaceTiming uh, loneliness away in their, in, their, um, in their houses. We would ideally right now be preparing for this. We would ensure that our suburbs are very much walkable, that they very much uh, foster the use of active transport, that they very much integrate public transport so that our huge cohort of, uh, of elderly people can actually still feel part of the community, can still engage in everyday life in a meaningful way. Because at the moment, I'm seeing lots and lots of areas, whole suburbs um, that are just prone to loneliness and old age. Simon, it's not just, um, I'd suggest it's not just old age that loneliness is associated with, but right across the demographic, demographic um uh segments oh of, of course of course there is but so for i can't guarantee that this is coming whereas i can almost guarantee that the loneliness and old age is coming because i see too many factors pushing this way you could argue um that loneliness becomes more of an issue um, across the board because more and more people will work completely remotely uh, you know you could see that therefore there is a certain level of camaraderie that you have in whether you like your job or not, you have some sort of sense of community by, um, you know, at least banding together with other worker bees working for the same horrible boss. Um, but 
overall um, for the young cohort loneliness, I, I couldn't find any plausible data, to be honest. Mm. I, I suppose also it's the, it's the uh, soft uh, infrastructure in suburbs as well, uh, Simon, and just like sporting groups, um, voluntary associations, um, Apex, Rotary, all those things, if they diminish, then those social bonds are, are loosened. Any oh, thoughts? Absolutely. If you want to move into a depressing subject, what Australia has been doing over the last decades, really, is to have shrunken away the middle class. So the, the middle class jobs, middle income jobs, they have been replaced by high income jobs, by a fair chunk of high income jobs, and by a smaller chunk of low income gig economy type jobs. But what this means is that all of a sudden we find ourselves in a society that is bereft of a sizable middle class. And the middle class, you know, those uh, tradies, those manufacturing jobs, these are the people that provide social glue, if you will that holds society together. Now you have increasingly rich and poor folks that have nothing much in common whatsoever, that live um, geographically segregated. They are all atheists in all groups, so they are also bereft of the experience of at least once a week, um, you know, feeling part of the same community in a, in a, in a church environment. So that is, uh, I think, quite dramatic, which then leads us to the big question, where does social glue come from? In, in Australia. And, and I think increasingly it will have to be sport. So sport becomes hyper important in providing social glue because rich and poor both uh, despise and love the same footy teams, which really helps to create a certain sense of uh, togetherness in a country. So please don't uh, underestimate the power of sports in Australia. Not that anyone would in this country anyways. Mm, yeah, that's a very, very interesting point I hadn't really thought about sport playing that role and I think those comments around the disparity between the you know the that I guess the the lower class and the upper class I guess you want to call it is is really severe and I hadn't really thought about that so well, well, well Jess it's also that you know Simon's brought up the the social glue that yeah binds communities and and uh, you know having been in small rural uh towns um and work there, the, the, the community organisations in those places are incredibly thick in terms of, mm. um, uh, you know, sporting, religious, uh, cultural groups, um, very, very much denser than in the city areas. Yeah, you but definitely sorry, don't Jess. notice it so much in the city, though, do you? It, it's, no, it's no. yeah, yeah. Sorry, Jess, you were going to say? In, in, the, in the smaller communities, you know, the, the one or two pub towns, if you will, everyone is going to the same pub which helps a lot as well. So this is where actually drinking can provide uh, the, the cultural bond as, as well, just by, you know, hanging out, even if you don't interact all that much with one another, you hang out with the same people. It, it acts, it creates a sense of community, which can be um, um, quite important. It's much harder to create in a, in a city where, you know, the population changes uh, every, every so often. Well, it also comes back to, you know, this idea that, we talk about a lot and we as planners talk about a lot in, in creating good quality local town centres and places for people to go and to mingle and to meet and, and do all these things that we're talking about. I think it's just really um, oh. driving that, that idea home. And this will be increasingly important when you have a population that is of low income. There are very few activities, very few meeting spaces that are available if you have no money. 
lots and lots of things to do, lots and lots of activities uh, cost money. I know the library, going to the playground, walking in a park. This is essentially all you can do without spending money. Uh, going to the beach, if you're near the beach. Um, but that's it. So we want to create though places where people can just mingle and hang out. We do need more town squares. We are a country that is bereft of town squares, which has to do with our colonial history, with the, uh, you know, the, um, the big shots of yesteryear, not wanting to give the, uh, the angry mobs uh, spaces to congregate. Uh, but now we shouldn't be too afraid of angry mobs anymore. We should be we're feeling settled enough in a democracy that we can add plenty of small squares to developments in order to allow people to mingle, in order to continue the walkable attractiveness of, of localities. Now, Simon, many people don't realise that many of our advanced Western countries are also starting to see population decreases. I'm thinking Japan, Italy and, and others. Are these trends reversible? And what are the implications for economic growth and community support? So these trends are essentially not reversible. Once you have a richer country, once you have a highly urbanised country, once women are educated, birth rates fall. They fall quite significantly. Significantly, throw on top of this unaffordable housing, high childcare costs, and countries will not grow the population base. That means we will be all but doomed to population growth in plenty of countries. This means that by um, you know, so the the more pessimistic outlooks, if you will, um, say that the world population will start shrinking as of 2086. That is 65 years from today. Um, that's quite a bit away. Who cares about this? Um, there are other institutions uh, that say that we might be shrinking the global population as soon as the 2060s, but it still sounds like an issue that is far, far away. But if you think about how we grow population in Australia, through migration. We are not interested in the total population because we, we import workers, but we're not even interested in the 18 to 64 year olds working age population. We're not even interested in this. Our migrants are overwhelmingly, almost 80% of our migration intake is 18 to 39. So that's really the population cohort that we are interested in when we are looking at the population across the world. And um, that population cohort starts to shrink as soon as the 2040s. Once again, we actually don't even care about the people of migrant age. We only care about the people of migration age, 18 to 39, that come from middle and high income countries, because that's where we get our workers from, because we require them to be highly skilled. And that population code starts to shrink in the 2030s. So that really makes the 2020s the very, very last decade uh, in Australia where we can get free migrants. Just remember how rare of a commodity migrant age populations will be in the future. Countries will pay a ton of money to attract migrants. Australia has done this in the past. Um, you know, if you had um, uh, parents coming over, grandparents coming over uh, from Italy, from Greece, from the UK in the 50s, they might have well uh, received a free, um, uh, I want to say a train ticket, a, 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 a boat ticket, a ferry ticket uh, to, to come to Australia. Um, and that Simon, we had the same thing in the uh, 1800s. I mean, we had the assisted immigrant program from 
uh, Britain with with many 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 people who it, were sponsored to come out. Exactly, and this will this will celebrate a comeback, and we will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax credits um, to people. You know, it's like hundred two hundred thousand bucks um, discount on your tax bill over the next decade. Something like this will be absolutely common uh, across the world. Um, because the whole world will try to attract people of working age population. Um, remember that we will run a country very soon um, with, it's, it's 13 years till we have a million people, 85 plus. That need, with, means we need to massively grow our healthcare workforce. Um, in 20 years time, it'll be 2 million. So we need to really speed up uh, or, or, our migration intake. Or, or Simon Robotics. And so the idea, the idea there is that lots and lots of the jobs that we need in order to, um, uh, to, to service an aging population, they will require human workers. So these jobs can't be automated, but lots and lots of other jobs can be automated. So any task, any job that can be automated in any industry will ultimately help the healthcare industry. And the healthcare industry is gobbling up jobs like crazy. 40 years ago, 8% of all Aussie jobs were in healthcare. Now it is 15%. More than 2 million of our 13 million jobs in Australia are earmarked for healthcare. And this is in a society where the largest baby boomer or the big baby boomer generation, they don't even need care yet. So the, the needs uh, of this industry are through the roof, are going to be through the roof. So we need to service this now. We're not preparing our cities enough uh, for an aging population. We are not um, really redesigning, uh, innovating, disrupting the healthcare sector nearly enough. Um, we need to come up with new and better care models um, to, to look after the population. So there's a lot and a lot and lot of innovation uh, coming our way here. And you know, if you want to have just one sector that you can be operating in throughout the coming uh, sector, make it healthcare. Simon, we're, we're coming to the end, sadly, of, of the interview, because we could talk, I think, Jess, we could talk for hours. What do you think? But Simon, one thing about people don't have a concept of how many more people there are in the world now than there were, say, in 1900. I think the population of the world is now about 7.75 billion, something like that. Yeah. And, and, and at the turn of the 19th century, was it maybe one B and am I far off there? Or... Yeah, something or something about this. I don't have those numbers uh, in, in front of me, but population growth uh, really took off quite dramatically simply because we lived longer, simply because we had such massive healthcare improvements uh, that made our lives just better. Remember that only 80 years ago in the 1940s, life expectancy was 63. And now it is 85, 86. So over just 80 years, we added a quarter century to our lifespan, which is pretty cool. Um, but that also means these are 25 years of retirement that we need to finance in, 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 in a certain way. And Australia is, is smart with running a superannuation scheme. Um, so in theory, every person pays for their own retirement, which is clever, which is much needed in an aging society. But that said, um, the superannuation scheme was strapped up in a world when we 
when we had much more middle-class jobs and fewer low-income jobs. So they didn't really calculate or price into the pension scheme um, the large numbers of low-income workers that will not have saved enough money to pay for their own retirement while they were still working. So there is still a pension shock coming at us, but it is nowhere near as bad as, um, uh, as it is in, in Germany, for example, or in Japan. Um, so that means as we move forward to peak humanity, which will likely be in the 2080s, if not earlier, um, the chunk or the share of the population that is old, uh, wherever you draw the line, 85 plus, let's say, um, that is going to grow rapidly. And if you look at countries like China, um, where the population will half by the end of the century. So China's population profile is a catastrophe, like you wouldn't believe. Everyone heard of one, the, the one-child policy, but it is quite stark when you see that they will lose population across the board and um, they will age like crazy and they're not rich enough to age that fast. Um, so you will see millions. We're talking about tens or hundreds of millions of people essentially just starve to death, fade away into a lonely, sickly um, existence um, that is a catastrophe in the making. Simon, uh, um, oh, that's, a, that's a bit gloomy, but... Um, I, don't think we, hopefully... I don't think we can end on that point, can no, we? No, no, we can. <laughs> now, Simon, what are you optimistic about? I'm, if I'm looking at Australia, I'm very optimistic. Even if you have an extremely pessimistic outlook about the world, you should be bullish about Australia. We're one of six countries in the world, I think, uh, that has enough energy and enough food um, to look after the whole population and that has plenty left over to sell to the world. So the business model of Australia to, you know, dig stuff out of the ground, grow stuff on the ground, sell it to the rest of the world and live a decent life, that will continue to work in the future. So that's, that is great news. We can, once we actually become smart enough about um, handing out citizenships in a more generous way in Australia, we can counteract the aging of the population much, much better than most countries. But we do need to take a book out of the uh, uh, Canadian pages and um, essentially provide a very clear pathway to citizenship to our international students in particular. Because you need to remember how crazy that concept is of running a country based on migration, where a other country, my case, Germany, pays for your upbringing until you're 20. And then, you know, you pay an arm and a leg for your uni degree, then you um, immediately start paying tax once you got a job, it is, and then you pay for your own retirement through the superannuation scheme. Migrants are a crazy good financial deal um, for Australia. Uh, and I think we can ultimately still be that country that attracts migrants even if the competition for migrants uh, gets much much worse plus we are western democracy and that apparently is a shrinking commodity as well well they're good things to put uh, finish on and now uh, simon we've come to podcast extra or culture corner something that you've read seen watched listened to experienced that might be of interest to our listeners Yes, yeah, so I, uh, well, as a, as a demographer, I'm always happy when I uh, stumble across people that also like demographics. And my recent obsession is a, is a guy from America called Peter Zion, Z-E-I-H-A-N. It's spelled weirdly, but Peter Zion is his name. And he writes about uh, geopolitics. And he, he talks about demographics as well. Um, 
every now and then he's much more pessimistic about the state of the world than I am. Um, but it's interesting, very sharp fella, very good books um, to read, even to listen to. There is audio books as well. Um, so I'd say give this fella a go and he posts heaps of stuff on, um, on, on YouTube as well. So that's, that's something uh, worth checking out if you found this uh, podcast interesting enough. Have you heard of the book, um, How the World Really Works? No, um, I haven't. Uh, th that is um, Vahil Smart. Oh, I can't pronounce his surname. How the World Really Works. And he breaks down the four great trends in civilizations, in our civilization, you know, energy, food production, the cities, everything like that, and uh, takes, takes a very interesting look. He's published a lot of books, um, How the World Really Works. But... I was going to ask Jess, what what's your podcast extra, Jess? I've got two today. Um, the first one is a book called Magpie by Elizabeth Day, which I think has sort of been doing the rounds a little bit on a lot of recommendations. I saw it on recommended by someone, I think, on Instagram. And um, I think I read the whole thing in about two days, which is saying a lot for me because, as you know, I'm generally a fairly slow reader. Um so really been enjoying that. And then the, the second one is Wordle, which I'm sure everyone knows about anyway. But Wordle, um, for those that don't know, you um, guess a word in six tries. It's usually, well, it is a five-letter word, but it's a really good way just to, I don't know, just sort of keep in touch with people. I use it with a couple of my close girlfriends and, um, you know, that's our, our interaction every single day. And, um, you know, it doesn't require too much effort but it's just a nice little thing nice little um can i send you down a, a rabbit hole jess yes play quirtle from now on quirtle quirtle yeah. is you play four wordles at the same time but you get nine oh. goals instead of six it is very addictive oh i like the sound of that well, and also it's that mental uh, exercise song yeah. that we we all need um well jess what about you, Pete? Well, you uh, you talk about Wordle. I'm hopeless with Scrabble and things like that. But uh, there is a another one, someone called Cloudle, where you guess the weather in a city somewhere they picked randomly, and you it's very much like Wordle. You've got six chances to guess like the five day or six day forecast in a location, and that's interesting because you learn a lot about other places i love the uh, trends coming out of wordle here this is great well, well well there's one where you guess your route on the london underground the same principle so hmm, uh, but my, my second one jess is i'm doing some family research for uh, a news uh, for a magazine article and i've been using trove um simon do you know about trove i think so yeah yeah so it's all the old newspapers have been digitized so you can search a paper for di different topics. In in my case, it was about uh, a tramway banner, which um, uh, a union tramway banner. But I, I found so much information by looking up the old papers. So anyway, that's Simon. Anything else you'd like to add to it? You've been a marvelous, marvelous guest. Um, your details will be on our website. Um, but anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? Uh, all the stuff what I'm doing on, online. So I'm obsessed with my maps and charts uh, on, on Twitter. So I'm sharing heaps of those, uh, you know, weird little maps and factoids about the world daily um, uh, on Twitter. And I quite uh, enjoy the, the weird trivia aspect of that as well, even though I also have, of course, a professional interest in that. 
What, what, what's your Twitter handle? <laughs> it's Simon German 600. Okay, Jess, we've got that. Simon, thanks for being such a good sport today. And um, we've really enjoyed this. Jess, thank you. And uh, thanks again, Simon. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcast, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast. <laughs>